Well, the Band of Brothers, it came about um, in the mid-noughties. That was when the ideas were brewing, and probably long, longer before then. But essentially, there were a group of men who were interested and involved in rites of passage work and personal development work. And that was through the conduit of an organisation called the Mankind Project, which offers uh, initiative experiences for men. It's done so for the last 40, 50 years, I think. And they had done their work um, and were pretty sorted from what, I, from what I hear. They sort of looked at each other and said, well, what's next? Where do we go from here? And um, began to ask themselves, so, you know, what, what's needed? What's, what's needed in our society? And then they saw something which I think at the same time caught their eye, but also just seemed quite an impossible task. And that was the the plight of uh, some of the young men in our communities and our societies and especially those who were deeply involved in crime uh, in, in destructive in self-destructive behaviors um, and they asked themselves the question well what would it be to begin to reclaim our social responsibility for um, stewarding the transition of our young men or young boys into a healthy adulthood what would it and let's start with the ones which is going to be the most difficult and the ones where it's really really needed hi i'm naomi murphy and this is the locked up living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life we also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop i'm david jones so join us every wednesday morning Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're meeting with uh, James Wong, who's Chief Development Officer and Finance Officer of uh, A Band of Brothers. Um, he's accountable for creating sustainable fundraising avenues and revenue streams in realising A Band of Brothers' mission. James believes in laying down healthy foundations for our future generations after many years of feeling frustration and desperation in his efforts, he's found new hope, meaning and personal potency by coming together in community to share the responsibility of supporting some of the most troubled young men in our society. Welcome, James. Very good to see you. Yeah, thank you, David, and thank you for the, uh, for the intro there. Yeah, I was just uh, hearing that and thinking, oh, does that still ring true? And it does. So it's actually good to hear that read back to me. Thank you. Hi, James. Really pleased to get the chance to have a proper conversation with you today. Can Can you tell us something about the Band of Brothers? How did it come about? Yeah. Well, the Band of Brothers, it came about um, in the mid-noughties. That was when the ideas were brewing and probably long longer before then. But essentially there were a group of men who were interested and involved in rites of passage work and personal development work and that was through the conduit of an organization called the mankind project which offers uh, initiative experiences for men it's done so for the last 40 50 years i think and they had done their work um, and were pretty sorted from what i from what i hear so most of those um uh, as a key elements around relationships, uh, around childhood trauma, relationship with parents, etc. They were, you know, pre pretty much sorted. And so they, they sort of looked at each other and said, well, what's next? Where do we go from here? You know, uh, they've all done their work. It was like, what, what's the next thing for, I guess, potent and developed men like us? So they did a 180 um, and about turn. They used to sort of meet in circles and looked out into society and um, began to ask themselves, so, you know, what, what's needed? What's, what's needed in our society? And first of all, they were mulling the idea of supporting the older generations, the older people in the society. And then they saw something which I think at the same time caught their eye, but also just seemed quite an impossible task. And that was the the plight of uh, some of the young men in our communities and our societies and especially those who were deeply involved in crime 
in, in destructive, in self-destructive behaviours. Um, and they ask themselves the question, well, what would it be to begin to reclaim our social responsibility for um, stewarding the transition of our young men or young boys into a healthy adulthood? What would it? And let's start with the ones which is going to be the most difficult and the ones where it's really, really needed. So it was a, it was, it was a huge challenge. Uh, and so that's what we did back then. And we started off, and I think in 2009, we ran our first Rites of Passage program. Uh, and it's gone from there. So that was the initial conception. And it's probably, actually, you know, if I may, I'd just like to talk about what came before that, because and the Banner Brothers were all about sort of honouring and acknowledging where some of the wisdom, the knowledge, the imputifidus uh, came from. So our roots go further back than the M uh, Mankind Project. Um, they're rooted in the mythopoetic men's movement of the 1970s. So people like Robert Bly, Michael Mead, Martin Prechtel, who were looking to bring back some form of initiation to help men grow up uh, and become the sort of men that our communities need. And even before then, uh, they based um, some of their work on some of the community-led rites of passage work of it's mainly from America who picked this up again. Um, Blumenthal uh, was it Blumenkrantz and Goldstein did some good work around rites of passage in the community, uh, and it also goes back to other people who had spent their life studying rites of passage, back to Arnold van Genep, who was a Belgium a Flemish anthropologist, and that was in 1909. And before then, it's sort of scattered remains and remnants of what we know um, around rites of passage in intact cultures, and not just for European or the American one, but also looking around the, the world for inspiration. So that's sort of where our roots go, in a, in a way, in an attempt to connect with what is largely lost to us in, in the Western societies, a connection to um, to the roots of a culturally held rites of passage for our young people, for our young men. That's really interesting, James. Do you think that America's been so influential there because of the uh, having an indigenous population that where rites of passage were quite a key part of that in a way that perhaps some of the other European countries perhaps don't have in such an obvious, obvious living heritage? That, that could be. I haven't actually read that specifically or heard that from any of the Americans that I know. But it seems likely with that, with the occurrence of that happening in the last three, four hundred years or even ongoing today, the tension, the cultural tension around uh, indigenous uh, First Nation people. Um, but I think also it's probably to do with the can-do pioneering spirit of the Americans, I think. Uh, who seem to be good at pioneering uh, in these sort of areas, in business, in uh, social technologies uh, and, and other areas. Um, but, um, and it could also be to do with, you know, the, the Americans, they are, and some of them might disagree, but they're essentially refugees. They, they fled Europe and it wasn't because things were good here that they went. They went because things weren't going so well and that's why they went. So they broke away in a way and lost many of their older people on the journey on the way over, which would have in turn, it would have left them sort of even more poverty stricken when it came to a connection to what was or what was being handed down. And in a way they've, become, they've come to reinvent themselves. Americans are sometimes uh, seen as um, uh, sort of teenage in spirit can do and wanting to test and try and sort of set their own agenda. But perhaps it came out of a um, a poverty really around tradition and having to make it up themselves that they began reaching for meaning and cultural sort of roots where there were none or they were pretty much lost. So maybe it's something to do with that. That's really interesting, really interesting. And how, how did you come to be involved with them yourself? I saw a Facebook ad. Um, I actually met someone at a barbecue. Uh, I was uh, home educating my children at that time and I was at one of our barbecues 
and uh, one of the guys came up and he said, oh, we were talking about a band of brothers. I can't remember what you were saying, but he was in incredibly enthusiastic. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I know. I'll, I'll give it some thought. I might give that a go. And he kept going on about it all night. He <laughs> had a bit to drink. And um, I could see he was incredibly moved and uh, really wanted the whole world to come behind this. And I guess, you know, I hear something, it sparks my interest. And I go, okay, well, I'll check it out and let's see. Uh, and also a friend of mine, uh, a woman who was also in home educating scene, she said, oh, it sounds good. I think you should give it a go. And that was, I felt that found that encouraging. So I went along to the open night. And there we sat in a circle of about 15 people from Eastbourne. That's um, where they were setting up back then. And um, I was, I was, yeah, I could feel that I was quite sceptical, actually. I was thinking, oh, all right, here we go. Bunch of men in the room. What's this going to be like? Um, so I was quite guarded and quite sceptical at that, that moment. And I was one of the last people to check in. And by the time it got round to me, I was actually surprised myself. I was actually quite open. And something had happened, not just in that round, but throughout that evening, where I thought, well, you know what, that was all right. That was okay. Um, and I just got a sense of, you know, something missing or that something's been missing in my life. So I felt drawn to it. But I was the only one that evening as we were checking out when they were asking, so are you up for this or not? And I said, well, I like what I've heard, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give it some time so I don't know yet. So I gave it two weeks and I know that if in two weeks there's still something stirring, you know, after the elation and the hype or allowing for the reduction of hype, I guess. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go along, complete my own rites of passage journey and um, get on board with mentoring young men in, in Eastbourne. And back then it happened really quickly. Um, I think within six months, we were on a mentoring program with 11 young men uh, from probation, supporting housing, and leaving care. And we were a part of that. That summer was also going up to Snowdon uh, to climb a mountain with them. So we don't do things. It doesn't happen so quickly these days. Um, <laughs> but I guess what I want to say is, you know, I was we were doing it before we even really knew what it was about. We received training and guidance from some of the senior men back then who were helping us set up in Eastbourne. Uh, and that's how I got back in. So I didn't come into it really with a passion for working with young men. And um, it took me a while to mature and get a sense of social responsibility and purpose in society. Uh, and that has grown over the years and it's deepened and widened. So in a way, I've been a slow maturing uh, fruit on, on this subject and probably in other areas in my life. But the foundation just feels solid and considered. Um, so I guess I'm in it for the the long run. Um, yeah, rather than just for now and on to the next thing. I've sort of had enough of enough of that. Yeah. And you, so you, you gave us kind of like an overview of, of the history of initiation into adulthood generally. But I wonder about kind of like Britain specifically, you know, what's the history within British society of initiation and you know why is this an issue for young people right now do you think yeah so we know that there was a, a mass you know besides wars and famines etc which can sort of rupture uh, societal ties there you know during the time of the Romans when they came to this land they I mean, their influence is, is felt today and it's been like, what, 17, 1800 years since they were actually occupying or ruling this, this country. But what they did is they, um, they began to rupture our connection to the land. So my understanding of, of rites of passage or belief, it was based around paganism. So connection to, to land and to spirits and the weather, etc. And through the implementation of agricultural technologies that the Romans brought, irrigation, etc., we began to do mass uh, agriculture. And what that did, it broke a connection to nature and the land. Uh, and so from what I understand, that was the beginning of fundamentally changing our relationship uh, with the world. And um, there were other things as well. 
um, you know, you have, you have uh, invasions and, and stuff like that going on. And of course, there's the Dark Ages where we're not too sure what went on. But what we are left with are stories and myths. Those somehow have managed, or we think, they've managed to weather um, some of the, the, the trials and tribulations of, of times gone by. So one of the main stories that we use in our work is uh, a story of the Grail. And we know the version that we work from has its roots um, in the 11th century, uh, where we know it was put to pen to paper and further developed. Uh, but we suspect, that's all we're sort of left with really, is that this story was passed down uh, from village to village, from fire to fire, down through the ages. So it was the job of the storyteller to, to do that. And I think more recently, um, there's been the Industrial Revolution, which further disconnected us to the uh, family unit and the land, etc. So the whole picture of industrialization has, has continued uh, that trend. But also just a simple thing that, you know, housing in the 1970s and 80s, housing became a commodity. So it was really easy to, well, not easy, but it became easier or there's a trend where people were buying houses. They would live them in them for a while, sell them and move on. So you had this constant movement of people. I know that's not true for all communities across England, but certainly in the South, it was, it was a hotspot um, for that. So I think that's also contributed to the breakdown. And, you know, we can talk about political or economic uh, setting, um, lack of youth clubs, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all things, but where we've ended up is there is, and also there seems to have crept in a, a generational gap between certainly older men and younger men, perhaps the younger generation, the older generation, where the older generation, it's not trendy to be old. It's like most of what's been pushed is around um, uh, staying young, looking young, dressing young, thinking young, and I think um, it, it's not so trendy to be old. And I just wonder how many of our young people look to our old people and go in, that's what I aspire to. That's where I want to be when I'm 60, 70, 50, 60, 70 or whatever. You know, I wonder if, if any or just, just what they think about that, you know. Yeah, you're touching on something really interesting there, aren't you, about our, our society's attitude towards ageing and a lack of sort of respect or an appreciation of the wisdom that comes with people being being older but certainly aging seeming to be something to be um put off as long as possible rather than embraced and um, relaxed into i mean just in response to that it's it, it's also you know we as older people or elders uh, or who fulfill the function of eldership to our to our communities it's like are we worthy of that it's a question for us so you know i think that has to be earned rather than just because we've reached a certain age it's actually our behavior and how we're showing up in the world is that something which invites actually where people go yeah you showed me something and that gives me a bit of a compass around where i want to be heading to and want to sort of give that gift back or or something similar you know because i think what what's needed in the world changes with the times. It's like there is no one you know, definition of, of man or women or, or qualities that we need. I think it just changes. It's like it's a response to the, the troubles, if you like, of the time, the needs of the time. Yeah, I also find that perspective very interesting. So I think this, certainly my experience of older people when I was much younger was associating them with a lot of bigotry and so it's hard then to be respectful or or see some of the wisdom that they might also have and you're right there's something about making a contribution in a way that I think does offer something of value to younger people isn't there? I think if they see us taking responsibility um, in some sort of way I think that um, that inspires them um, and perhaps makes the future for them look a little less bleak or impossible. I was wondering, James, sorry, I was, I was thinking about something you said earlier and I get very interested in what 
snags people's interest. So I wasn't clear quite how you got involved with the uh, organisation. You mentioned the barbecue and the garrulous uh, friend that you met. Um, but what was it about that? And what was it about that that encouraged you to go to that first meeting? I think it was just... I don't know, I didn't really understand or know much about rites of passage or mentoring back then. But it was that first encounter with a group of men where, you know, up until then and, and probably since in some way, you know, I'm working on that, I had a deep mistrust of men. I, um, men were competition for, for, um, for partners, for money, for jobs, for status, you name it. And I never really let other men or let, to get close to them. And I'd certainly never had an experience, I guess, or a, a collateral of experiences of being cared for or valued by. Um, and perhaps, I, you know, I wasn't able to offer that myself. I just saw them as, as threats, really. So in that moment where a number of men let their guard down, and I did a little bit, and I was quite cautious... That was quite a relief. That was quite a relief. And it seemed like an adventure as part of um, uh, the hero's journey, which is part of initiation. Uh, Campbell talks about it and uh, Jeanette talks about it, Blumenkrantz and Goldstein. They talk about a time when there's, when someone hears the call. It's like the call to adventure. So there was something in that moment and I saw that in other men, also the men leading it, I was quite impressed with and thought, wow, these men are holding themselves in a way that one I appreciate. There's something a little bit edgy and scary for me as well, but I'm curious. I, I want to, if they're involved, yeah, I think, yeah, I'd be up for that. So it was in that, I think that was the seed and the rest was just sort of data and, and um, just understanding like what was going on but it was an adventure there was a bit of recklessness in it really oh i'm just going to go along it sounds like it'd be all right i'm up for a challenge i can do this and there was no you know and i thought well, if i don't like it i just won't do it i won't mentor young men uh, but i did like it it was and i think the rites of passage weekend the initiation weekend was a significant experience for me so, you know, I'd been in therapy before then. I actually trained to become a therapist after that. And I'm actually in therapy again uh, for a year, just sorting out some other things, which have been hard to budge. Um, but something happened on that weekend, which was a major shift in how I saw or experienced myself and how I saw the world and experienced other people and myself in relationship. And the thing that stuck with me was I had a marked experience of being cared for by men. It was like, wow. And even then I didn't quite believe it, but I certainly had an experience of. And there was one particular um, uh, man who was part of facilitating my, my process, uh, Dan Hartley, who, and I thought, he seems so nice. I never quite believed it. I actually work really closely with Dan now. I speak to him a lot. Um, and I've realized he, he's genuine, man, he is genuine. Uh, and that's quite a thing for me because I, I just couldn't believe it when against, yeah, my sort of early programming, the world, people are not to be trusted. Um, but I genuinely believe in his good intentions and goodwill and caring for others. And for me at that time, that has been welcomingly welcomingly sobering you can imagine what other story was playing out instead of that <laughs> that's quite a, a major thing and i know the same thing begins to happen with our, our young men you know there's a lot of distrust between older older the older generations and the younger uh, many older men are, are, are frightened you know they see a, a group of young men hoods up it's like on guard um you know, when I go around Eastbourne, there's, there's a chance that I'll, I'll probably know them or at least one of them in the group. So rather than that happening, uh, and actually with, with time, it's they've heard of a band of brothers if we ever get into that conversation. But 
it's good to walk around and just you know see connections in the in just walking around and go okay how you doing what's up how you getting on yeah thank you that's very helpful i agree with you that that well i as a man can be quite wary of groups of other men if 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 not of actual violence then there's an anxiety about humiliation because men are pretty good at humiliating uh, other other men and women of course so I think you've given a really good description there of the kind of safety and containment that you experience with the spice of something, as you put it, a little bit edgy and new and yeah. discovery. It was, it was edgy. I mean, I had such a front on going up to that weekend and right from the word go, it just dropped. And I thought, my God, this is serious. It was, it was incredible. It was serious. So it wasn't a penny that dropped. It was something a lot heavier than a penny, but um, maybe a drop in a well. But in all that stillness, it, it certainly landed with me. This is this is serious stuff. And it was, you know, some of the th conversations or things we were doing and invited to do and especially some of the i guess in a landscape sort of work uh in a narrative sort of work uh, around difficult experiences you know that i and i know since working with others you know i wish had never happened or i wish i could forget about but just unable to because it's sort of locked in locked into my body you know so we're talking about trauma here or early any sort of experience which left its mark it doesn't matter what it was it's the market left um, so it was, I guess, just loosening up some of those, understanding how that impacted on how I was understanding the world and myself, and just begin to loosen up and be offered an alternative, like from an adult state, to go, well, this isn't happening now. So there's no need to be like that. And just seeing that whole sort of misguided, I guess, it, it wasn't misguided, but it was definitely misguided in an adult state. As a young person, some of that stuff, yep, needed to be in as black and white as that. But later on, you know, when I'm struggling with intimacy, with, with commitment, with direction, with creativity, with emotions, um, it's, there comes a sort of calling around, God, something needs to be done. I'd like to unburden and change this. And um, that's been part of our work. And... I know we're talking, you know, sort of rites of passage event and subsequent training and ongoing personal development that we do is the, the key thing is all in service of community development. So this is a time, especially for us older men, where it's no longer about us. It is, but it's in the service of something which is beyond individual needs. It's looking outwards and being the, the men or the man that's needed by, in this case, by our young men who are deeply troubled, deeply in, in danger of um, criminal activity or, or suicide, addiction, and looking for ways to help them, help them, um, yeah, just feel a little bit better about themselves and people around them and um, so they can start to rebuild their lives in a way that's right for them and right for others because at the end of the day reaching a certain maturity we see that yeah you know and it does take young men a bit longer to sort of catch up on the empathy front than than young women you, you may have you know the what was it the um cab sponsored research into uh, young uh, male brain development prefrontal cortex the bit that deals with um empathy and compassion and therefore understanding the impact of my actions is not fully formed until 25 you know generally whereas in women generally it's complete and all done by the age of 20 so it's that part which is really useful um one in empathy but also for um looking after babies understanding what their needs are etc so that's why we we like to catch them if we can in the under 25 while their neurology is, is still plastic, still, still, um, or more formable than it than it will be a lot later. 
think that plays a role in why it's uh, I've not heard there may be um, projects for young women of this of this nature, but it, it seems like there's a there's an appreciation that this is really important for young males. Do you think it's more important for for males than than females, or diff, you know, is it a different need? Yeah. So I think. I mean, it's, I think what happens is important for, for both. Um, of course, I spent a lot of my time looking at what's, what's right for, for young men, what works for young men. But there's something which happens with most women, most young women, that doesn't happen um, to, to a man. And that is um, the menstrual cycle and for some of the women, um, childbirth. Now, one, there is a visible physical change. So in a way, uh, initiation or the rite of passage is held by the biology. So there's like something changes. I know men's voices drop and they might develop facial hair and uh, become muscular and broaden. But in childbirth, you have all the elements of a rites of passage or an initiation. You have uncertainty, you have the risk of failure, and you have the real risk of death which, unless a man goes to war, is not, um, it doesn't happen to us biologically. So in a woman who's, and I guess maybe even a prospect of, I mean, I'd have to, we'd have to ask the women really, but I imagine even the prospect of, of getting a menstrual cycle and being able to have children, it poses that, that whole set of, well, what happens? What's it like? What will childbirth, will I survive? Will I make it? Will the child be okay? It's all in there. And I know you could have a father on the sidelines also being a part of that, but it's not happening to him. He is not the one who is uh, bearing and giving birth. So in a way, um, I can see how that would, I imagine if I was a woman and that happened, that was something I did, that would certainly change. I still think there needs to be an initiation uh, and, and I don't know of any community-held initiatory projects or programs in the UK. There are a number of organisations that offer rites of passage for women, but they are all, as far as I know, for profit. Um, but they don't have the community focus in the same way um, that, that a band of brothers does. But I still think it's important that the community or society imbues i mean i know in america that you know you have the bar mitzvahs uh, maybe here as well um and also there are some latino cultures in america latino americans that also have a coming of age for the young the young girls but i think it would be really good actually if there was a sort of sister circle of sisters or whoever whatever who were also doing some work ideally with the partners of the men we're working with <laughs> i mean that would really really help all the families or the mothers that lets them understand um what's expected of them and what they can expect from the older women or from the community in return where they are their status is elevated once they reach a maturity and it's marked by an initiation it's like now you are and this is your place this is what we expect of you this is what you can expect from us in a way this is a code of conduct this is how we hold ourselves these are our values and as we know in a pluralistic and and um, fractured society in many ways there are so many versions of of you know, set of values, there's corporate ones and, you know, schools do a good job, institutions do a good job, organisations do, but something where we can find common ground to, uh, to be a part of. I mean, that would be really, really good. I think it's, you know, thank you for asking that question. I'm even more convinced it is necessary that young women in our country, um, and I really hope that someone would do it. But anyone out there listening who's interested, happy happy to share our experiences what we don't want to do is tell you how to do it um, that is really we think for 
the women to initiate that that you know we'll be there if you need us but it this you know we'd like it to be yours um, we don't we don't want to we don't want to meddle too much we don't we don't know what it's like to be a woman for starters we have you know, pretty good guesses but um we don't really know it's a great offer thank you james so what kind of young uh men does uh, band of brothers work with and, and is there anyone you wouldn't work with so we work with anyone, and I'll give you the exceptions a bit later, but we receive referrals from probation. And that can be uh, in community probation or they could be in prisons, um, sort of preparing for release. Uh, and also the IOM teams. Also through Leaving Care and supported housing projects. Those are our three main avenues for receiving uh, and then it falls into sort of mental health, uh, other third sector, other charities. And after a while, it's referrals from the young men where they've gone to their, their peers and said, oh, I think you should do this. You really need to do this. So word of mouth, really. Um, but we like, you know, mainly that they have, um, they're involved in the criminal justice system or they're at risk. Um, and there are also always exceptions. So we usually work up to 25. We will work up, work with young men up to the age of 30. Really gonna be up for this, really wanting to change. The people we don't work with are people who are on, uh, on a script, so methadone or subutex or crack cocaine or heavily addicted to class A drugs because our weekend will be just another hit in a way. It's just another up and there is a pendulum. There is naturally a pendulum effect from such an event. That's why we um, have a 12 week mentoring program on the back of that. We also mentor 10 weeks ahead of it as well to prepare them. But um, so we ask them to be free of uh, class A drugs for six months. Uh, before we'll consider receiving them onto our programme. We also don't work with anyone who uh, has a history of um, child, um, child abuse or child sex abuse uh, offences. And that's mainly, uh, primarily around, we, it's, there is such a culture within, I mean, within society, but this is, it's, it seems to be within the criminal, uh, in a certain segment of society who are involved in the criminal justice system or around it, that they're just totally unforgiving about anyone who has um, committed a crime, sexual abuse, sexual abuse against children. And we would struggle to keep them safe. So we've had incidences where we didn't know and it came out later, you know, after all the vetting, the referrals. And, and there was a reaction we wouldn't want on a weekend uh, or in our programme. So we, and it's often with, with a heavy heart, actually. It's like, and it's difficult saying no. It's difficult saying no. And sometimes even I'm going, but surely, but surely if, and I have to be reminded and sometimes I'm reminding others Look, this is why we don't. Um, so those are the exceptions, yeah. Thank you, that's, that's a very clear portrait. And, and what about volunteers? Is there a certain kind of pers person? And, and how do you ensure a kind of diverse range of volunteers? Mm. Mm. So the type of people we want, who we invite, we're looking for to mentor, are men who have won the practical capacity to do so. So even right from the start off, this is five to six hours a week of volunteering. So it's the training, it's the, it's the mentoring, it's the supervision, maintaining a connection with the, not just with the programme, but in between programmes, because we have an on and off season, uh, a way to mend the nets if you like so a way for their mentoring group to work on their relationships because this is challenging work and 
the men involved, they're invested in what we do. And it's emotional work. And it's it's not uncommon to be to be triggered or uh, broadsided by some of the subject matter coming up, or you know the intense way we work in having a beef with someone else. So we take the time to tend to the conflict, tend to the relationships, so that when we run our, especially our weekends, and any man, young man coming into that group that they get a sense that they're held, that there aren't any ruptures. Um, th th there's always stuff going on, but as good as it gets, we look to keep things contained and solid and ready to, to hold um, the young men coming into that space. And how do we keep it diverse? Well, what? yeah, it's a good question. I mean, at the moment, it's it's really putting out the... Um, the feelers. So each local community is responsible for recruiting or putting the word out, engaging older men and younger men in their communities. So that is, yeah, that's, I mean, there's, I don't think there's, it's just like, here we are, this is what we do. And of course you could have some communities, you see, well, there's, there's a dozen or there's 20 uh, white faces there. Can't relate to that. Uh, and sure. Yet, I think where our communities operate, that it's representative of who the people are in that sort of town. But what we are doing, and this is quite a pioneering project for us, is we want to design or redesign our weekend. Uh, and sort of the rough heading is um, 21st century uh, men of, man of colour. So it's uh, a black and brown led or designed weekend that is specifically designed to initiate i.e meet the needs of black and brown men um, in a uh, where the dominant culture is white anglo-saxon so england so that's what we've got in the pipeline I mean, it's got a price tag of about 55 grand if anyone's interested um, for that conversation um, and we'd like to launch that that will that will be in London um, and that will be really good to yeah to have have that owned led designed by, by black and brown so it's a bit of a pioneering project really there are some some like papers that are in projects that run in America we can sort of have a look over the, the garden fence and see what's what's going on there maybe having a conversation with them actually and there's also some of those running in London as well I was speaking to someone from Sparks Inside um, who and they have a, um, a black-led, I think, mentoring program or something like that. So yeah, there's people at home as well we can look to as well. See what works in London, which is place-specific. Look to America just to look at some of the the ideas and see how they might fit for us. So I think in that way, we, um, I guess you know, when you talk about diverse, I guess I see it as keeping it relevant really because you know. Um, um, black men are four times overrepresented in the criminal justice system. It's you know it's atrocious, and you know, in the same way that we work with young men, where there's ninety five percent of the population, the prison population are, are are men. It's like it's you know it's like whoa, what's going on? And I think society we may become a little bit numb um, to those sort of things. Oh yeah, it's just men in prison because it's men who commit crimes, but um, yeah. So I think that, and also around, you know, this diversity uh, training, which is really around us and our volunteers understanding. Um, it's equipping, actually, first of all, that's what we're doing right now, is equipping our members to have some of those difficult conversations around equality, diversion, inclusion, what it means for us as individuals or what it means for the other people. And although we are pretty good at listening and we're pretty good at dealing with conflict, we've seen there's something else is needed to hold a conversation which can be incredibly emotive, um, but in a way where I can feel heard and also hear what the other person is saying with some heart, not heart that's shaking or, or hurting in some sort of way, in an un unhelpful way, if you get what I mean. 
So I think it, all those sort of ways are just raising, um, I guess, our emotional and social intelligence as an organisation. Also, the issues around um, clear, like what's going on, you know, why, why are there four times as many black men, etc., uh, all the other things that are going on. And I think that way, um, we, so we don't set, like, you need to get so, so many black men. We don't do that. It's... It's like we work on on attraction. So what can we do that would attract him? Yeah, we can reach out, but yeah. Yeah, I hope that. If I sound a little bit unsure and confused, it's probably right because we're still working that out. Um, if you know anyone who's, who's, who's sorted it out, the EDI question, uh, um, I'm sure we, we could look to find some good money to pay them and so they can sort us out, but... So far, yeah, I don't think it is a nut to be cracked. I think it's something to be wrestled with. Uh, so in that sense, that's what we're doing, <laughs> along with everyone else or other people. Yeah. Well, I was, was going to say, I think it's generally speaking in the psychological field, it's axiomatic that people struggle to get a diverse balance, particularly among practitioners. Um, Increasingly less so, I think, in the prison system, in programs and therapeutic communities. But among practitioners, it's still a struggle. I don't know about you, Naomi. What do you think about that? No, I, th I agree. I think it's uh, it's one of the kind of like most contemporary challenges, really, isn't it? As to how to create um, organisations that reflect um, reflect and diversity and are inclusive and accessible to, to everybody. I mean, one of the key, if I may, one of the key elements of a successful community-based rights of passage programme is there needs to be not just a connection between the young people in the programme, but there needs to be a connection between the men, or in our case, the men running it and the programme. So there needs to be a level of ownership. Otherwise, if you don't have that row of things, it just doesn't work. So we have tried satelliting our programme in a way into London. I'm not saying that was the reason it didn't work, but we think we'd have better chances if this was a grassroots-led something from men from your community, your postcode or whatever, who are stepping up to uh, be available for the young men in that area. You know, if we can split London into a set of villages, if that's at all possible. Um, and in a way, you know, that, what does that do? That sort of activates the sense of local social responsibility in men and gives them a purpose. And Yeah, that sense of community seems important. important. Um, and actually even thinking about organisations like NHS trusts, um, prisons and what have you, probably the, the more focused an organisation is on its community and engaging with its community, the problem, the more easy it is to to reflect what's going on at a community level. But what, what are some of the challenges beyond that that you've encountered during the course of the work? Well, one of the early challenges was realising that just the weekend, um, however impactful, um, however transformative, doesn't just work by itself. Uh, and there, out of that came the community sort of based mentoring programme which actually has, there is an official end after 12 weeks, but it goes on, you know, young men can access the mentoring uh, support circles for the rest of their lives. One of the ongoing challenges, and anyone who's involved in a criminal justice system or third sector will, un will go, yeah, us too. It's engaging young men. So how to actually... <laughs> You know, we know we received 30 referrals and we'll be speaking to 10 of them who will even, you know, and five of those will actually come on uh, to the programme. So we know that's, that's what it's like. And because, because of what we're asking is quite a, we're asking the young men to step, make a significant step into the unknown. With men, they've maybe met for 10 weeks and had a, a bit of mentoring and 
they get jitters and rightly so it's like it's better that you come with some jitters onto this weekend it tells us you're taking it seriously uh, even if it's expressed sort of outwardly yeah come on i'm up for it you know can't wait to be picked up i'm coming i'm all up or it's like people wobbling oh i'm not too sure so it's engagement and it's also growing our leadership so it doesn't matter how much money or funding we get or how sorted we are operationally we can't you know the old saying goes you can't push a river so the sort of men that we need in our organization who have the presence the empathy the potency to engage our young men and work with our young men that takes time so a part of what we do is is ongoing leadership work and mentor training work and it's also men who are ready to make that turn that into a job because there comes a point where i can volunteer and then it you know i can't volunteer any longer it's not sustainable when it turns into a job and who's ready to you know who knows what job they're going if they've got engineering jobs or whatever job it's like no just financially i can't work for you you know i think we we you know we pay a good wage so that's a challenge and it's just uh, sort of a bottleneck in a way i mean organizationally and I, I won't go on about i'll just sort of briefly but you know we are a small maybe getting into the realms of medium small charity and it's one of the overarching imperatives right now is well how do we grow as an organization uh, enough to support more and more communities around the country and we still maintain a sense or uh, of, of where we come from so our values our altruistic roots so it's balancing ideals with um uh, professionalism really you know things that are needed to make an organization work so that we're in a throes of that organizationally at the moment and um just um yeah just getting our act together in lots of ways organizationally in a way to support um the operational growth and you know there's a beautiful tension in there there's a beautiful challenge in in um aspiring to 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 help make that happen yeah so it's that an engagement and also I think we do incredibly well in bringing together groups of volunteers so between 12 20 sometimes 25 volunteers who meet up regularly do intense work together training will spend 72 hours uh, twice a year on one of our rites of passage weekends staffing away from home without their mobile phones that by and large these communities stay intact it seems to me or some of what i've encountered in the volunteer sector is that you have you can have just one person who's the charismatic do uh, got all the time and leading it and you have a changing group of three or four and it's quite difficult to grow it beyond then and i think what we're achieving is quite remarkable really you know groups which i wouldn't say they're immune to imploding or exploding because of interpersonal sort of stuff or intrapersonal between communities and the central um, program support body but we are attending to what will make us more resilient in that sort of area because as we're noticing as we get larger we're losing we're having less day-to-day in-person contact with those communities we have yeah it, there's more distance between say the executive and the front line so it's like how to maintain those relationships that sense of belonging connection is that even possible um so yeah we're challenged by that really because without our volunteers a coherent functioning group nothing happens you know that seems seem like quite a common challenge for organisations as they as they grow, isn't it? To how do you adjust to the to the scale? Um, I don't know if you wanted to say anything else, David, before I asked another question. I, I suppose 
relevant to that is because you've given a good description, I think, of your plans for development and uh, expansion. And, and, and I suppose one of the thoughts that brings to mind is how do you manage safeguarding? Because we know that there have been numerous examples of problems arising in boys' clubs, football clubs, churches. So how do you manage that side of things? So we manage safeguarding um, probably like, I mean, like every other organisation with you know, safeguarding policies, safeguarding training, um, and having a clear line of accountability, um, etc. One of, so one of, um, one of the key things that we work with because we're working with young men is around um, accountability. I mean, right from the word go, Every week, as a group forms and comes together, there is space in there to um, either hold ourselves accountable or be offered uh, accountability, but a way of working and staying in integrity. So that's pretty good for just sowing um, that seam of accountability through our organisation. And that runs all the way through. And if not, it's quite obvious when it's not being adhered to. Uh, and there's an expectation that, that people do. When we do have safeguarding uh, can, you know, issues come up, they can easily swamp and take over, um, especially uh, Dan uh, and Conroy, who um, are the exec who hold the safeguarding uh, roles, safeguarding officers, and we just have to take time for those every single time. There's no rushing safeguarding. There's no like, oh, that will do. No, it needs to be, it needs to be attended to. It needs the time that it, that it needs. So in a way, it, it can stop everything. Everything else has to wait until that happens. So we are looking at restructuring and expanding and delegating those roles or some of those administrative roles and raising uh, sort of the organisational intelligence to to better handle and deal with uh, safeguarding issues on a local level. Um, but it's not easy. There's just so much to be um, that needs to be taken into consideration. So I'd say you know we do it well, and we feel the what's the word. Yeah, it's like having a river flowing and then someone opens up another sluice gate and that's where we've got to go. That's where our energy needs to go. So, um, but I think we could do better by um, building out, um, continuing to improve our safeguarding training. And um, hey, look, and this is risky business we're involved in. It is risky business. You know, uh, the people we work with, um, some of the things that we do, we're running close to the edge of, of, you know, difficult things to be looking at or talking about. So it can easily become quite emotive. And I think just fortifying our mentors as well in sort of, you know, being compassionate, being potent, being present and clear on what procedure is um, allows the young men to... Um, or these sort of things to sort of be held and received. Um, but we're not immune to it, we never will be. It's difficult, it's difficult stuff. Did that answer your question? It's a real challenge. You know, given the section of society that you're serving, I imagine you've probably encountered some quite painful stories during the course of your work. How do you look after your own emotional health whilst doing this work? I mean, I think you've hinted at some of that in terms of the actual work sounds quite nourishing. Um, but I wonder if there are any if there's any advice you would give to um, to anyone listening about things that seem really important. Yeah. You know, and just thinking back, I have struggled along the way um, you know, I think the way I, I go with it is I, I allow myself to be moved. I allow myself to be troubled. Um, and I also have my limits where it, it brushes up against, you know, my own stuff. Where I can no longer be so empathic or so receptive of that. 
Um, so what I do is, you know, we have a great culture internally of, of mentoring. And there are some great men around in our organisation who I can turn to um, to speak with, to speak it out, to receive some support, receive some care. Um, I also have supervision myself, which is of a therapeutic nature, which is incredibly helpful um, to, yeah, some of that stuff which just seems so deep-rooted. Um, yeah, it just needs an extra little bit of care, I guess, and time and subtlety to work out. That's sort of where I'm at. You know, and the beauty of the work I'm involved in, the better I get at this, because I still work on the front line, I still run um, a lead on the rights of passage weekends, I still mentor a young man, is the beauty is the better I get at it, the deeper I get more involved. And again, I meet my edges again afresh, um, which just challenges me. And, you know, it doesn't mean I need to attend to it, doesn't mean, but if it's meaning sleepless nights or I'm finding myself disconnected, um, I often find that it's, I need to grieve, really. And it is inbuilt. I actually, you know, regularly, I make sure I, I, I staff those weekends at least twice a year, if not four times a year. Because every time I forget about what's going on here, I'm right there, I can be involved in it, and I'm reminded. And I just come away from those weekends feeling a whole lot softer, a whole lot more connected, a lot more humility, uh, having shed a whole lot of, of tears um, and that seems to do me do me well also I also do stuff which has nothing to do with uh, um, third sector helping people or or any of this so I paraglide and para I picked I did start to paraglide in about six years ago and although I'm I am wary of oh look James you're putting yourself in mortal danger again you're taking risks and you're all by yourself up there. <laughs> I do actually enjoy the community around it. Uh, you know, when I am launching off the hill on my paraglider, I am definitely not thinking about emails. I am definitely not thinking about organizational development, growth and funding and finances or interpersonal stuff. If I do, it's a real concern. I am making sure that I am staying afloat, uh, uh, not falling out the sky and enjoying myself and finding a good place to land and just generally being appreciative. I know it's pretty high octane sort of stuff, um, but there's also a great community around it, which by and large, I know everyone has troubles, but if you can afford to paraglide, you know, some of your certainly economic stuff, or you're doing okay. You know, it's not a poor man's sport um, and you need a bit of time for it as well. So that's quite a, a bit of an antidote to connect with the paragliding community uh, fly around a bit, to spend time in nature, actually reconnect with Sussex and the rest of the country and other areas. Um, that's a great way. And going for walks and being at home and um, yeah, just being at home, spending time. I think, I think I'm, a, I'm an extrovert who likes um, time by myself every now and again. And I'm really good in my own company as well. So that's how I take care of myself, I think. Um, yeah, in a nutshell. Lovely answer. I really enjoyed that interview. and especially appreciate your openness and honesty earlier. You could really um, get a sense of how powerful and moving your journey into being part of Band of Brothers was and could hear the how transformative Band of Brothers can actually be for the volunteers, never mind the participants who are, you know, the people who are on the receiving end of of what your charity does so thanks very much for sharing your story with us today and i really appreciate the invite um to appear on your, on your podcast and you know besides the recording and the mics and stuff all around us um i'm really appreciative of the way you've both listened and attended to what i'm saying um so you know you're talking about self-care at the end that actually feels good for me to speak and to be listened to in a way that you've uh, offered me today. So thank you both for that. Great conversation.